the the like blacking out factor i just had an experience of that <laughs> last night at the uh like the gallery opening mm-hmm. for the art show i was i hadn't like emailed the i can't remember if i talked about it but i was on like a i was paired up for for the keck school of medicine uh they have an art program where they pair artists with researchers to make an artistic interpretation of their research mm-hmm Actually, I, I'm sure we, I mean, new listeners all the time, right? Probably. Yeah. On a They're podcast. always getting out of the airport, turning on that radio, then being like, I don't want to listen to this. And then they just randomly download a podcast they've never heard of before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're going up to the information desk. Excuse me, what local podcast do you recommend? <laughs> um, well, there's this one where only half of them live in the city. Yeah. Great. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, we did it. We talked about it on like the population genetics episode, but um, anyways, I I didn't speak to the researcher beforehand to know if he was going to be there to talk with me because we were each going to present the research and the the artwork that represented it. Um, so I was so prepared to talk about his research and present that, and then talk about my art piece, um, and then he showed up, and I was like. Oh, sweet. Like he'll be able to talk about his research stuff. Um, and we were like talking beforehand and it was our first time meeting in person and he's talking with Miho too. And then they're like, okay, well, we'll start, you know, doing the presentations. So if you want to go stand by your art piece and we'll just kind of pass the mic around. And there's maybe like 40 people there at this point or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they have one person start speaking and then my researcher came up and he goes like, I got to go catch the train. So, uh, I trust you to talk about the research. <laughs> Fine. I was like, Oh no. <laughs> so, Perfect so I timing. had to yeah, qu- <laughs> like quickly recall everything I wanted to say about his research. And, uh, I stood up there and just I mean, Miho said, and she knows me well. She was like, no, you didn't seem nervous. You're fine. I, in my head though, I was just like, how, how, uh, uh, <laughs> Phy- phylogenetic, how do you say right. it? Phylo? P- I don't know. <laughs> just look at it. <laughs> so <laughs> it went off, it went well. Um, and then I, I told my joke about my art piece, which absolutely killed. Great. Uh, so, and then it was smooth sailing from there. But yeah, I, I think talking I like public speaking. It was just not one that I I did not prepare for um, suddenly needing to recall scientific information at that depth. But you had kind of prepared because, you know, you'd run it through your head a million times beforehand to make sure that you didn't look like some noob idiot to the <laughs> to, to the researcher right, right. when you met him the first time. <laughs> Yeah, and then I was like thinking, do I do I need to do like an icebreaker and say like, well, you know, I, I got a degree in biology, so hopefully I'll be able to explain it. No, that sounds conceited. <clears throat> yeah, come no, on. that's when you're like, but it was from Texas. And then everyone's <laughs> like, oh. No, I didn't. Um, I The only groans I would have gotten if it was uh, from UCLA, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. They don't have a they don't have a big rivalry with Cal Berkeley. No, no. They they only refer to UCLA as that other school across town. Okay. But <laughs> so so they don't mind like Loyola Marymount or what's the what's the one that's by your house? 
uh, UC, uh, UC Irvine. Irvine, that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the UC system has like, what, 15 schools or something? Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's another one between here and there, I think. And then there's a UC Riverside, which is... And San Diego. Yeah, San Diego. Um, is there a Santa yeah. Barbara? UC Santa Barbara? I think so. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're the, the banana slugs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you get any kind of like uh, honorary... Uh, art and biology PhD from USC that you can now add to your resume? <laughs> no, I haven't received my honorary doctorate yet. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's in the mail. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, maybe uh, maybe you and OJ can hang out now at the alumni parties. <laughs> What's the one that's like dedicated to his friend or whatever? There's like a building name. Oh, Al Cowling's building. Yeah, something like that. We'll just we'll meet there and give the secret handshake <laughs> to each other. Man, I don't know what I'd do if I ever saw OJ. That would be so weird. I mean, I did see Mike Tyson in person and didn't do anything. That's what, a conflicting one. Wait, you know? Were you gonna go hit him? Like what? No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. So I don't think it would have gone well, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> With Mike Tyson, I mean, obviously, I know his background of domestic abuse. Um, but now he raises pigeons and says he spites, he fights with the spirit of Mao. Yep. <laughs> so I can't be, you know, has he reformed? <laughs> he's been reeducated. Uh, he's, he's Mao's reincarnation. Yeah. <clears throat> Although I don't think he believed in reincarnation. Who, who's, who could tell? Who could know? Yeah, I don't know. Not me. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the ordinary. I tried to yesterday um, set aside time to look back over my notes and um, forgot. Okay. So I did it this morning. Uh, so so you're even fresher, be... even fresher than you would have been. <laughs> I quickly read through it as Chibi was waiting on me to give him his medicine. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I'm I'm just happy that we didn't have we had zero. Uh, mass shootings between last week and this week, so now we can talk about black holes at the yes. center of our galaxy. Wait, we had zero shooting. I thought, I, I well, mean, or or there were nineteen, but I can't remember. It, it was either mm. zero or nineteen between the last week. I it's it's all just scrambled. You know, who who could possibly know? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> But at least, you know, this they didn't want to make it politicals for the school shooting. So now they've given it enough time. They've gone down their water slide so they can fully focus on the Texas school shooting. 
Well, we can't we can't really talk about it until the parents are done grieving. That's what the police chief said. Uh, Well, you don't want to. Yeah, (laughs) you don't want to bring it up to them. Have any of the parents come out? Because I remember after. Oh, yeah. The parents are like, uh, all we want is your transparency. The parents have like a united front that's like you know you guys are all wearing body cams you guys all had all of your radios you have the 911 calls those are all public information we could solve this real quick could just release it all and they're like whoa (laughs) this is part of an internal investigation like we can't just give that stuff out (laughs) right yeah okay i i just haven't seen it i don't i don't know Uh, twitter's busy showing me this johnny depp and amber heard thing which I could not care less about. Two famous people <laughs> that uh, one of them was, what, married to Elon Musk? Um, so I'm not sure which one of it, them it was, but just an absolutely annoying pair of people. Yeah, I, and just, I'm did, did anyone really need uh, to go through a long trial where Johnny Depp ultimately, even though he'll say he won, lost, to, to know that he was an abusive piece of shit? Like, I thought we all knew that like 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what this thing was about. So it's, it's interesting. I don't understand what the, the the only thing that the suit was about was Johnny Depp was suing Amber Heard for 50 or a hundred million dollars because she, he said that she ruined his acting career of getting more pirates movies by saying in one line in an op-ed in New York Times that she was a survivor of domestic abuse. Not specifically saying it was him ever or anything like that, but his implication was because she said that in a New York Times op-ed, that caused all acting jobs to be pulled from him, and he lost millions of dollars. Yeah, you don't really lose money that isn't yours to begin with. But (laughs) I know. I don't understand. How did... How is it defamation if it's true? Right. That's pretty much the point. But the, I mean, that's that's kind of what I think the whole thing ended up being about was. And I didn't really follow the trial other than just like reading some synopsis and other people who are covering the covering of the trial. And so I get that there's like uh, this is just another kind of case of. You can you launder uh, a victim's um, life, personality, what they've done in their past, and you use that against them to claim that they don't qualify as a true victim of domestic violence because they are, you know, a bad person or had been shitty to if in other instances of their life, which that's not really. Who cares about any of that stuff if, like, it doesn't disqualify you from being a victim of domestic violence? If, if you're, right. if you're also a bad person, you can still be a victim of domestic violence. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I mean, I'm sure both of them, anybody involved in that trial, would give you the tired phrase of "hurt people, hurt people," but then they're like, "But that hurt person, that means that that person isn't allowed to." Yeah, yeah, have said that they were hurt. Yeah, that's that's annoying. But, you know, whatever. Which which is that's that's been I think the uh, the reason the trial became like outsized beyond just like tabloid celebrity type of fodder 
was because it became like this big uh, sort of incel like uh, media meme campaign that set all of TikTok and ev- all the other social medias on fire by all of these this huge you know let's destroy Amber Heard type of uh, campaign uh, amongst those circles, which, yeah. you know, we don't need Gamergate 2.0, but that's kind of what it was like. Yeah, it seemed like a bunch of incels were posting about how she's obviously lying. It's just like, all right, maybe you should uh, get out of the house. Touch grass, <laughs> as people say. Yeah, right? exactly. <clears throat> yeah, so... So now that we've covered all of the 19 school or 19 mass shootings since Uvalde and we've covered the Depp and Amber Heard trial, we finally cleared the slate so we can talk about a little science. <laughs> so I don't know where to start on this one other than I mean we've done a black hole ep- episode um it was very early on. I think it was like episode 8 or yeah. something. When we were basically just talking about what is a black hole, does it is it the breakdown of Einstein's theory of general relativity, or is it a further confirmation of Einstein's theory? Yeah, but I don't remember if we spoke about. I mean, I think we touched on it. I looked at my notes on like the formation of black holes, but the the different theories of especially like the Sagittarius A star black hole being a supermassive one and how those were formed um, is pretty strange. And obviously they don't have conclusive evidence to say this is definitely how these were formed. But it's very interesting that there's like, like the ways that they think black holes exist and how many potential black holes there are is wild. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because if you go all the way back to the primordial black holes or the primitive universe black holes and everything, and you add it all up, it gets pretty crazy. The primordial black hole theory is one that I was pretty interested in because it's, and this doesn't relate to our supermassive black hole, possibly. I mean, maybe there's a connection, but... I've not seen scientists really draw that connection. Just covering all my bases, you know, in case somebody listens to this in 200 years. It's like those <laughs> morons had no idea it was the primordial black holes the whole time. Just use your black hole camera. We all have them on our phones. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, the the you know, it's kind of funny. It's one of those things, it's like, you know, whenever you you hear, like, hippies talk about like you know uh, the interconnectedness of humans or whatever and i certainly feel that way and and imagine things that way because we all came from the big bang so we're obviously all of the same like you and i are the same thing you know Mm -hmm. um we just have different consciousnesses of it not to say there's like reincarnation but there's we are the same thing kind of yeah yeah Um, we're a bunch of regurgitation of the same elements (laughs) right so i'm just imagining those people in 200 years watching the sound garden music video being like oh they had the ancient knowledge already (laughs) it was (laughs) you know people talk about like indigenous people the great astrophysicist chris cornell knew it all along (laughs) right (laughs) so 
That is to say, uh, people in the future, I would like for you to credit us with something. Name something after us. You know? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. there's plenty of black holes out there. So the primordial black hole theory, though, was one that, like, there's, it's been a theory that's gone up and down um, and theorized originally by Stephen Hawking. Boo, everybody mm. doesn't like Stephen Hawking. Island Boo. boy. Island He's boy. He's a real island boy. <laughs> he, he, him and some other guy <laughs> theorized this, that at the beginning of the universe, before stars had enough time to form and then collapse, there was fluctuations in the universe and in the amount of mass that was located in certain areas. And when you look at the cosmic microwave background, that seems to be evidence. Yeah. It's not uniform. Like the cool spots and hot spots. Yeah. Of different densities and stuff like that, that these, these dust particles and everything, um, collapsed hydrogen into, gas. into very small black holes. And, um, I just found it very interesting because the, like, especially with LIGO, the, you know, black hole, or I guess, gravitational wave detector. Yeah, yeah. Um, with it being able to detect black holes, they're like, well, obviously this doesn't... The number of black holes that would exist at this scale, which would be slightly bigger than small asteroids, they, mm. would, they would be less than a solar mass. Um, and typically the black holes that are formed, like our star will not form a black hole. It takes stars about two to three times bigger yeah. to form a black hole. But that's like the smallest black holes that we found is like two and a half solar masses. And these black holes would be even smaller than that. But if they were that small, because of the principle of being a black hole, they would warp space time enough that they would have so many collisions that they would cause gravitational waves that LIGO just doesn't detect on that scale. But through, I think, like computer simulations and stuff, um, so a new theory has brought this one back to light that the way that those primordial black holes would exist and the areas that they populate, which within this theory people think are the areas where like dark matter exists, mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily that they are dark matter. They could be, but it it's like that's the region that they would expect them to be. Um, I found it very interesting that they the the theory fell out of popularity because they said they would form a binary pair. So there would be two black holes and they would circle each other and then collide. Yep. And you would have thousands of collisions happening all the time. But because of the nature in which they were formed, yes, they would form a binary pair, but then a third black hole would enter and kind of knock one of the other ones out of orbit. They would then go join another binary pair. Yeah. So it's like this weird dosey -si do I they, guess, they don't, they don't all collapse stance. into one super giant black hole because they're all just attracted to each other. It, they they are emitting this these huge electromagnetic um spectrums of waves all around them that not only attract but also can repel each other right it's i mean it's fascinating <laughs> that there this theory has now come back into um a working theory that the observations 
especially like I think the initial observations that LIGO had before the supermassive black hole gravitational waves, like the the major one, was possibly this kind of interaction of black holes, which is it's pretty cool that there's I mean, it's weird to imagine like you think of a black hole and think anything it has any sort of interaction with, it's just going to suck up. Yeah. But that's not how it operates in nature. Right. And the I mean, clearly by even just the um, tangential evidence of observing Sagittarius A star at the center of our galaxy, it's been theorized pretty much since the 19 teens that that is it could be a place of a black hole that's at the center of our our galaxy sort of binding it all together um and then through the 50s and 70s with optical telescopes and radio telescopes we started to be able to like see that there's clusters of celestial bodies of stars and other gas that are all real close together at the center of the galaxy and then in the 80s and 90s, we started being able to tell like the velocities of some of those stars that were orbiting were like a fraction of the speed of light. They were orbiting these vast distances in very short amounts of time, which these are all just sort of smoking gun things that there's a there is something there. But you can't you don't have any direct evidence of it there. You just have the sort of symptomatic evidence that it could be there. Um, and then it takes like the 2000s to even understand that there might be like a big exploding jet plume that's coming out of the center of the galaxy because we had a, advanced enough radio telescopes to see that, oh, wow, there's these uh, polar opposite jets shooting out of this thing from the north and south pole of what would be the center object at the galaxy. And they're being emitted at near the speed of light and they're stretching for, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years in opposite direction. And in some in some cases, the measurements are beyond the actual diameter of the galaxy. So when you do the reverse math, what could possibly create these things that could eject? It's not just sucking, it's shooting stuff out what could possibly be strong enough to shoot some, anything out at that velocity at these sort of polar regions, then you're kind of left with a black hole. Um, so the, uh, the understanding of this thing, of these things has been an incredible sort of, um, I think confirmation of the scientific process and confirmation of we have to do these things we are we are researching things without knowing what the result is ahead of time. We are going through these processes just trying to gather enough information. And even when we have hundreds, thousands of data points that point to the evidence that this thing might be there, we're still not going to declaratively say that, oh yeah, there's obviously a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Because even then we might be biased by our previous theories and and how we're approaching this. We're just going to try to approach this whole black hole question as a question of trying to solve equations in mathematics and and see where see where it lands when all the dust settles when we have enough instrumentation and enough data points that will actually reveal an answer. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most kind of gratifying things of studying the 
the research of black holes and how that, you know, starts with Einstein's general relativity in 1915 and stuff. Just the, even though there's been a lot of barriers and gatekeeping and science and different individuals on ego trips who've prevented other people from making discoveries and all of those types of things and lots of other aspects. Um, the data was the data and it just kept pushing the fucking sled up the hill. Like no matter any individual who might've thought he figured it out, whether that was Stephen Hawking or Niels Bohr or whoever it was, um, the data was still the data and it doesn't matter necessarily who who's like ego it might violate or whose opinion it might change or whatever that it's always just been this eternal kind of scientific quest. Yeah. The science of it has, has been so interesting because like you can get observations. I don't know. It, it is, I hadn't thought of it the way that you're describing, but that is so true that they kept, they had theories and they kept getting evidence and just kept pushing until they have recently now, you know, like what imaged it so that mm -hmm. they have this exact image of the thing that all of the theories that were, you know, pointing at it being a supermassive black hole and all of the observations line up perfectly with this thing that exists at the center of our galaxy and it's i don't know i think it it shows to the impact in science that is often hard to feel when you're in the middle of it yeah because like the you know the guy that technically kind of discovered it for like bell um years ago when he was setting up the the radio telecommunication stuff and heard this like hiss that wouldn't go away. It's a bunch of pigeon poop. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I am like they originally thought it was it was like the sun because it would happen on like these you know the what was it? It was like a twenty four hour kind of cycle yeah, where yeah. it would, it would go up and then down. Um, so they're like, oh, okay, that's obviously the sun. But then they the way he moved it and mapped it and everything found no, it's this thing deep in space. Um, and he like published a paper on it in 1933. They didn't have the term black hole until 1967. So yeah, it's, it's just, it just shows like how much any input into something can ultimately lead to major breakthroughs um, that, you know, I don't know if they currently credit like uh, that guy, I'm so bad at writing down names in my notes, but <laughs> whoever the guy was, <laughs> um, make sure to keep the company name in there though. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget, um, don't forget bell. You, you love their helicopters. I'm <laughs> big fan of their telecommunication network. Uh, it, it's just nice to have that connection to everyone is actually working together even if you never meet. Yeah, and that and that, that's I think um sort of working backwards. The so you have the Event Horizon Telescope and in 2019 that's when they revealed the they published the first image of a black hole and that was with the one that was at the center of Messier 87 M87 galaxy which is um 
much farther away than the center of our galaxy. Obviously, it's another galaxy, <laughs> but it is also like a thousand times larger than the Milky Way. And the thing that is at the center of that galaxy is over a thousand times larger than the thing that's at the center of our galaxy. So the reason that one gets imaged before the one at the center of our galaxy is kind of because even though it's so far away, it's so much bigger um, that they could get more precise um, information from that one first from the data set that they took in April 2017. Um, to publish, so it took you know two years to crunch that data and come up with an image for the one at the center of M87. In April 2017, that that time where they used the Event Horizon Telescope, which I'll talk about in a minute, how it's just a massive array of uh, radio telescopes all over the planet to make an Earth-sized telescope. Um, that same April 2017 observation period was used to also observe the center of our galaxy. And so it's taken five years, five years plus a month, to come up with the data set and crunch those numbers to show the definitive imaging of the black hole at the center of our galaxy. So it, a lot of this to say that the methodology is very sound with, with the way that they approached this. Um, and the fact that this is a huge global collaborative effort of hundreds of individuals from like high ranking, you know, science officials at high ranking universities um, to like very low level first just getting into the game researchers who are just looking for somebody to give them an opportunity to crunch some calculations so they can add it to their like grad program or whatever. This is a huge endeavor and it's not an endeavor that's like uh, some sort of multinational corporation wanted to do this as a way of turning a profit margin or um, commodifying it or something like that. They're not like they didn't hire the best scientists in the world at all like $10 million a year salaries and lock them in a room to come up with this. Like that's not the way that any of this happened. This was, this was certain group of scientists who understood what very long baseline inferometry does and how you could utilize the earth to be able to see something as far away as the center of our galaxy or as far away as the center of the galaxy in M83 or M87. Um, and then them going and petitioning these telescopes that they don't own or they, you know, they don't operate. Like you got to get sign up years in advance just to get a few minutes on some of these things to look at one thing in the sky. They went around the world and said, look, um, so we want to image a black hole. And in order to do that, uh, we're going to have to use your telescope here at the South Pole and we're going to have to use your telescope here in Hawaii and we're going to have to use your telescope here in Chile and your telescope in New Mexico and this one in Mexico and this one in Greenland and this one in Argentina. And we're going to, you know, add them all together. But right now, uh, since none of you guys like are in a network together, uh, none of your uh, com computational standards or hardware or software will actually work for what we need. So will you please uh, just kind of let us bring in our IT department and completely like 
gut your computer systems of these telescopes and let us make them compatible with our project. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Which sounds like, you know, why would anyone say yes to this? But these telescopes did say yes to this, and they let these people come in and retrofit and change a lot of the IT stuff on the on the ground at the telescope locations in order to make it compatible with their data finding system. So if you, you know, read a bunch of articles about this or you watch some videos and you listen to some interviews, um, the resolution that would be required to see a black hole at the center of our galaxy or the black hole at the center of M87, there's a lot of sort of analogs. One is uh, if you had the ability to have a telescope that could read uh, the date on a quarter from the distance from New York to Los Angeles, that's the level of resolution. Or if you wanted to be able to see something that was the size of like a tennis ball or smaller, a golf ball on the moon from anywhere on earth, that's the level of resolution that you're talking about. And there's a, the, the other beauty of this is that it's very basic math. Like even you know, first year algebra type of people could figure out like the equation that it is for the size of the dish you need to get to the focal point to see something that far away in any type of level resolution. It's a very simple equation. Um, so you kind of know, well, the one at the center of our galaxy is this many light years away. The one at the center of M87 is this many light years away, but it's also this much bigger. So roughly we would need a disk a reflective disk on our radio telescope that is the diameter of the Earth. And the reason that that's basically the reason why it was so compelling to all of these uh, telescope installations all around the globe for them to be like, oh, yeah, sure, let's retrofit our our whole IT to make this system work so we can collect that amount of data because we understand the basic geometry and the basic algebra of how you get a dish big enough to get this level of resolution. So when you're talking about this level of data to get this level of resolution, you're not talking like gigabytes or terabytes. You're talking like petabytes. And so like the, uh, the researchers, um, would to describe the way that they would gather this information, they showed that it would be impossible to transmit any of this information over even the highest speed networks that we have on the planet right now. So like as you as each as each installation is gathering their information for their little piece of the sky that they're able to grab to look at a black hole to send that data to like some centralized center um, over over the internet <laughs> is pretty impossible. Uh, it, the The file sizes are just too fucking large. You got to make a professional we transfer account at that point. Oh, it's 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 uh you know they the example that they give is the the dude picks up two of these brief briefcase size hard drives that they have installed at the uh, at the different telescope sites, and he slowly walks across the stage. And he's like, what I just did <laughs> by walking 10 feet with this information is a thousand times faster than this information could be transferred over 10 feet of, <laughs> uh, of wire. Um, so none of it 
is transmitted via network or via wireless or anything like that. Everything is transferred by 747 to two different coalition centers where they take all of those hard drives and put them into giant supercomputers to try to start, um, you know, organizing the data. So even the one like in the South Pole, like they had to wait, um, you know, because they did the imaging in April. Then the South Pole, obviously, the winter is the summer, you know, when you're on that part of the earth for us. It's the opposite of us. So, yeah, what you believe in a geometrically spherical earth, it is. But, <laughs> but uh, so you can't like fly in or out of the South Pole, uh, you know, for for like five months out of the year. So they had to they did the data. And then they had to wait until they could land a plane that has like ski skids on it that could get to the telescope in order to get that hard drive and then fly it back to their coalition center. So like the just the amount of data when you start to talk about how each one of these sites had these giant hard drives and they had to fly them out of there and then put them all into these two different supercomputers to start breaking it down. It starts to make sense why it takes two years to understand the data from M87 and five years to understand the data from the center of our galaxy. Yeah, the that's definitely the other thing too in science. Like uh, data science, I've, I've got no clue, never done it really, um, like computational stuff, but the amount of time just to do things. Like I guess we spoke about it on the very first episode, like with the COVID testing, mm-hmm why it was taking so long back then is just it's not that people are always doing something with it the time that you have to let the data or the experiment or whatever do itself (laughs) takes forever yeah like you gotta just there's so much waiting time that really like you know drags stuff out and and makes it last that much longer so it is kind of interesting hearing the human aspect of it because it's like the amount of time i'm sure it took for those hard drives to transfer the data just into the program to start organizing stuff has got to be you know a couple days i would imagine oh yeah oh yeah and well and the other thing to remember is that the only thing that makes this project worthwhile a worthwhile endeavor is if you can then take that data and then unbias it and then make it so that you are confident in the results that it's giving you and you're not just guessing that it's giving you the result that you want. Because you spend so much time on it. Right. Yeah. That's got to be strange at this type of experiment because it is, you're getting, I mean, what what type of rays are they collecting into the dishes it's 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 mostly radio it's mostly radio like they start with optical but so you can see like initially you can start to make out the faint even like the um uh super jets that are blasting out that are mostly only viewable in the radio spectrum um you can even see them visual on the visual spectrum too so but most of this information is all radio telescopes all picking up uh electromagnetic radio waves but it's not like it's 
showing up in front of you on a screen. No. And then you 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 change the contrast to make it whatever. Like these are things that are totally it's it's just numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's ju- it's just it's just numbers that then you have to turn into some sort of representational um information that then becomes an image. And part that's uh, that's another big thing is um so one in order to capture the image you have to have a telescope that's as big as the planet. Now you can't make a telescope as big as the planet. So you select I think in this in this instance where they did this observation they were relying on eight major installations all around but in a way that were geolocated such that as the planet rotated you always had two that were the radius of the planet or the diameter of the planet distance apart from each other so you always had them like on the edges so you could get that true kind of triangulation you're using the whole size of the dish but in order to do that like the thing that's on the leading edge of the planet as it's rotating is going to be at a different timing when it's getting its radio signal from the thing that's on the the trailing edge of the rotating planet so you get what i'm saying like it's it's not like you can freeze the planet just make it stand still for a second and then take a take a photo like the planet is rotating and all of the all the uh, telescopes are located in an array all around the face of this rotating orb so is there also like a doppler effect yeah there is a Doppler effect, and th- this is a big deal when it comes to the image, which is kind of like a, a another piece of proof of the image that, like we talked about with the Doppler effect with sound or whatever, you also get this with light. So as things get redshifted, you know, that they will be further away from you versus the brighter things being closer to you. Um, so as that Doppler effect is happening, you can know then where whether stuff is light whether these photons are on the front side of the accretion disk of the black hole or whether you're seeing photons that are being bent by the gravity of the black hole and they're actually on the far side of the black hole. It's so wild. I I like just the imaging of these things is such a feat of understanding the mathematics of that stuff. Like I would have never understood that just by using what like 11 different radio telescopes around the world would mean you then get the same resolution as a planet-sized dish like that's well you don't you get the the equivalent of the resolution if you had a think of it like um like the hubble telescope has a big mirror you know where the light then hits bounces off that mirror and then uh collects on a focal point Um, so if you thought, so if you think of the Hubble telescope as if it was the size of a planet, that mirror, what, what they're doing is the, the best analogy is if they shattered that mirror and then we're only to keep able to keep like 11 shards of that mirror. And so then you have, you spread those shards out to the extents of where the mirror would be. Um, and then you get the reflective points off of those shards and then you use the time duration of how long you are observing 
and all the different locations on the planet. And then you, all of the locations for this data were, you know, fitted with complete atomic clocks that only lose one second every 10 million years. So the accuracy of being able to sync them up of when the one on the easternmost side got its image versus the one on the westernmost side. So then that's not going to cause like a blurry image, you know, when we when we um, coalesce that information on a focal point, we've got to understand the time dilation of the Earth's rotation and everything to to correct for that focal point blur. Um, so the idea is really for the future of uh, Event Horizon Telescope is add another, you know, handful of telescopes that are on the planet to add more little shards of the mirror to, to fill out the whole disk. But then if they had just like four fast orbiting, uh, low earth orbit, um, radio telescopes that they could add to this array with those four, like orbiting in four different orientations around the planet, you could basically fill out the whole the whole mirror then and that's kind of the plan for 2025 you could have the re the basic resolution that you would have of a optical telescope that is the size of the planet if you can grow the array to being that size that's cool then well the yeah you wouldn't have the the idea that it would take five years to crunch the data to get the image is a whole lot of that is having to deal with the fact that you're dealing with fractured parts of an image and you're trying to process yeah. versus having all of it there yeah that makes way more sense then i don't know it's the the engineering feat is very impressive you have impressed me yeah i think it's a cool thing just in a time where we often you know talk about how everything is falling apart and you know people are at odds with each other and no common ground can be found like these types of projects are where common ground is found across every population on the planet. Like you can get people from every, every walk of life, like every race and creed, and they will, they'll all work towards a common goal in this type of situation. So there is like the, uh, the beauty of science kind of transcending, uh, our, our human barbarism is is all underlying this whole project. Yeah, except for one midday host in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Everybody else finds this very interesting. <laughs> it is, I don't know. I think the the thing that was also kind of cool is the the imaging of the what is it? M what was it? M eighty six? M eighty seven one. Um, being that it's a thousand times further away than our black hole, but a thousand times bigger means that the images like look the same mm -hmm. as, as the black hole that they emit Sagittarius, a star at the center of our galaxy, which is so awesome on the, on the fact that then they can start to observe how something that massive acts the same way this supermassive black hole acts. Yeah. Like we were talking about the primordial black holes and that's kind of the reason I brought it up is those act very, they're black holes, but they act very different than how the supermassive black holes act. So then they were kind of wondering like, 
well, does a smaller supermassive, like, you know, what is the, the weight class? <laughs> right, and right. Apparently we're just in the extra heavyweight, like where anything goes, like we're in UFC two. Yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very cool that the, the, the aspects of these black holes, I don't know, it seems possibly there's an upper limit to this type of nature of black holes and then one that would be even larger than that which i don't know if it's theorized but oh yeah there's there's ones totally that are different way you know even you know big soup like bigger than the m87 one because they're like the right. size of uh, there's there's ones theorized that would be like the mass of a galaxy but oh, man. <laughs> but of course you know condensed in whatever the the uh, uh, Schwarzschild uh, equation is where you have to find it. You define it by like the square root of 27 or something plus the mass plus something else. And that tells you like how much where the event horizon exists before you get to this, the actual clump of matter that is condensed to cause this kind of gravitational warping of space time. Yeah, it's such we a We talked about Schwarzschild on the last one, right? I'm sure we did. His story's cool cuz he was the one who was the the World War 1 breaks out when he's 40 years old and he's in Germany. And this isn't, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity has just been confirmed because there's just been that uh solar eclipse and people were able to confirm that yes, the light of the stars that would be positioned behind the sun actually does bend around the sun to make us think that they're act they're kind of like to the side of the sun. They bend at the exact one thousandth of a degree based upon the gravitational pull of our sun. So yeah, general relativity does say that gravity bends space time and thus light moves on curves around these objects because it's being bent by gravity. And so, since that is just published, um, Schwarzschild, the war breaks out, he volunteers for the German army, he's 40 years old, he gets put at both fronts, um, spends the last part of the war on, on the Russian front. He's Jewish, um, like Einstein and lots of the other uh, German uh, physics uh, scientists at the time, and um, he is stricken with uh, an autoimmune disorder that seems to have been more prevalently um, harsh on the Akhenazi Jewish community, and that's how he dies. Um, he doesn't even make it to the end of the war because he dies of this um, autoimmune disease. But he, um, he, in the time where he's still in the trenches doing artillery calculations, publishes three papers <laughs> on Jeez. on on the the concept of a event horizon and that's he's the one who does figures out einstein's equations to their you know limitation that says okay well if there was something that coalesced matter dense enough there would be a point at which light could not escape that and so and then that has a radius that is bigger than whatever the uh, final thing is but we'll never be able to see the final thing because the radius where the light is prevented to escape is just outside of that um and so that's where we get the whole concept of event horizon and everything like that um is from him 
um, doing those calculations sitting in the trenches in World War One. Yeah, I, I remember you telling that, and it's it's just crazy to think like you can separate your mind enough from from what's going on, um, and the uh, very strangely ideology that you're fighting for is very strange. Yeah. And, you know, like he dies in 1917. Um, his kids grow up in Reconstruction Germany before World War II. His two oldest kids get out um, uh, in time where they're not um, subjected to the Holocaust, but his youngest son doesn't get out and he dies in, uh, uh, in a uh, concentration camp. Jeez. Well, um, nice of them to at least name the equation after him i suppose yeah yeah <laughs> he's 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 the father of the event horizon and the the Schwarzschild radius he's he's got a few things named after him yeah i remember last time we were talking about like what is the the concept of data of like a black hole um but i totally missed the the stuff that i, I was looking up this time which is just the the gravitational force of black holes, like especially around Sagittarius A star in 2018, they like were able to detect the emissions caused by magnetic interactions from hot gas that was orbiting around mm -hmm. close to the event yeah, horizon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it's going, this gas cloud is going 30% the speed of light, yeah. which is just mind-boggling but then you you look at like some of the other stuff and in july of 2018 they saw observations of a star s2 that was orbiting sagittarius a star that was going 765 kilometers a second which is 2.55 percent the speed of light yeah which I mean, it's just that's a, that's a whole star that is much larger than the sun, <laughs> whipping it's, around in an elliptical orbit, like getting sh like shotgunned every time it whips past the black hole. Yeah, I I'm sure you've seen it before, but I was looking up like the the ascension angles and stuff mm -hmm. of the stars around this black hole, and you know. The elliptical orbit thing is just so interesting in space that because of the curvature, they eventually just get to a point where it's going to shoot one more time and then it's just going to come straight right back, back in. in the middle. Yeah. And S14, like the star that is, it is so <laughs> a straight line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, like it's elliptical orbit. It's so narrowed now. Um, but of course, you know, the, the mass and the, size of these things i'm sure i won't be able to observe it within my lifetime of it colliding with the black hole but which i mean i don't even know what i'm sure it would emit something but i mean definitely gravitational waves like you know ligo yeah. has picked up more than just that first black hole collision that we talked about all those a couple years ago it's it's seen like uh now, like quasars being stripped apart from another star in a binary system, it's seen like one black hole cannibalizing two stars in a a binary star system that has a black hole at the center of it. Um, we like 
just knowing those gravitational waves, um, having evidence for it now is has been huge. Uh, so, and then the, I think the coolest things are when they uh, convert the gravitational wave data into audio wave data. So you basically just hear what the what the sound sounds like when two black holes collide, and it starts as this low whoa and then it goes whoop, like all the way up until like this because they're just spiraling in on each other, and then once they collide, it's like a little beep, and it's over. Yeah, the I don't know the formation of black holes in that sense, or the interactions between the two is so wild too that they like the formation of these supermassive black holes. Um, I don't know which side you fall on, but, uh, don't they sort of say like, there's no way these were formed by a star collapse. Yeah. Like they, cause you would need like M87, you would need, I forget what the analog was for the math, but it's something on the, to the tune of like 300,000 supernova explosions going off constantly in order to come close to matching the energy output and things of that so it's not even like one it's definitely not one star collapsing and it's not like right a bunch of supernovas all went off at the same time near each other and then coalesced and then collapsed it the i think the leading edge of the idea is that supermassive black holes form because they absorb smaller black holes over time and they gain their mass by swallowing another black hole and they gain their mass by swallowing another one and gain another so which is kind of what LIGO showed when you had the two smaller black holes collide to form one um you could they knew the size because of the fluctuation in the wave that they they're so heavy that they're causing a on the trampoline of space time you have two bowling balls that are vying for position as they spiral down to the center so you're feeling all of that distortion of space-time is what the gravitational wave is so then once they finally spiral on top of each other and then eat each other in the center of the trampoline it all becomes calm again because now you have just one mat super massive thing that's in the middle of the trampoline and it's just holding that one spot down in in this fabric of space-time it's no longer two semi-large things warbling around the space-time until they get to the middle once it's in the middle it's like ah peaceful calmness again like and until it starts eating more stuff <laughs> yeah and then you imagine that it's spinning at <laughs> like uh yeah but the i think the What's so cool about like these supermassive black holes is like the, well, one, I don't even know if we mentioned, but Sagittarius A star is 4 million times the mass of uh, our star. Yeah, right? yeah, but it's only the size of the diameter of Mercury's orbit. Yeah. <laughs> so like you could put it in our solar system and it wouldn't even like come close to getting to venus it's yeah it would so it's that much more massive than our sun but size wise it's not that much bigger than our sun <laughs> it's so wild but the the like scenario of like the direct collapse where 
gas dust collapsed and caused these supermassive black holes mm-hmm. and then it just happens to relocate into the center of a galaxy and absorb all of that um i don't know when but those sorts of things like the unique signature of infrared light and everything that those give off will be able to be detected by the james webb space telescope yep um first images next month okay so july 12th I believe July 12th is the big uh, reveal day of the first images. Are they, do you know what they're measuring first? I, I have no idea. I, I'm sure it'll probably be uh, whatever they were using as sort of their um, oh, right, uses right. for baseline to calibrate their focus and all that type of stuff. So it might be like stuff we've already seen, you know, before, but it's things, known objects in the sky that now will have even better resolution of. You know, like using stuff we've already looked at directly with Hubble and then that they use to calibrate the machine. It's not going to be any like, uh, this is something that we've never even pointed a telescope at before. And look, it's a bunch of aliens. It's, I don't, you know, I don't think it'll be that. Right. <laughs> I. It would be great if they actually just like picked one human on Earth to image. Yeah, just as, to just point like it right back. It. <laughs> it's just TC on his look roof. Look at this guy <laughs> flying a drone. <laughs> There, it went into the tree again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, I wonder, you know, we have like uh, our current like satellite-based telescope, like low Earth orbit can, you know, see within like six inches on the ground of of acuity. So, you know, James Webb out there at its its, uh, Lagrange point, I wonder if it would like be able to see like uh, the the hairs on like your your eyelashes or something test it out spin it around spin, let's, we, point let's, it back let's calibrate this shit <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um i guess the only other thing that i had on this um was just this it's it's more evidence now that we have two galaxies that we've looked at and we've looked at lots of other galaxies without the event horizon telescope that show a lot of other um ancillary evidence to to say that pretty much galaxy formation is probably completely dependent upon having a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy that we there's already enough mathematical formulation to think that there's kind of no way that a galaxy could exist and you know do its gravitational stuff of holding all the bodies together and rotates like they do without having that um the only way to kind of explain a lot of uh geometry of galaxies is if you put a supermassive black hole at the center of them when you're doing the equations and um, so far, we haven't found one now that doesn't have a supermassive black hole at the center of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting then. Because I know, like, isn't the deal with, like, the observed galaxies that collided? Yeah. But there's, there's like, no collision. They just, like, move like ghosts through Yeah, yeah. Because, like, galaxies, when you look at them in the sky with a telescope... It looks like a little smudge that you might think was just a singular star at first. 
So you intuitively our human brains, you know, think, oh yeah, that's that's a whole lot of clusters of really close stuff. <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is so far away. So fucking far away in space. Just imagine how far things are aware that are just in our solar system. Like and then know that like we we don't have like the capability to even travel to the closest star to us <laughs> and then know that like all of the stars in the galaxy are that far apart or further apart than that so when even when two galaxies would collide like you might have uh simulations where if the centers get close enough together you'll have like a little kind of like splash around uh mix up and you'll get like a super blob galaxy that used to be like two spiral galaxies and now the black holes at the center of those eventually coalesce into something larger but right now like the simulations of andromeda hitting the milky way galaxy and whatever it is uh a billion years or something um it wouldn't even be like that. It would just be like two ships passing in the night just kind of through each other, you know? Yeah. And there's, but it's held together by dark matter and all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, Well, that's where Fantastic. we get back into the dark matter and the dark energy and everything that we talked about before, how you calculate for the rotational um, geometry of the edges of galaxies being at certain speeds that doesn't seem like it should be right because it doesn't match like centrifugal force and all these other things and then you have to be like oh well there's like an outside force that's also squeezing it from the outside it's not just the inside pulling it in and that's where you get the dark matter calculations and then you compare that with a cosmic microwave background and you can start to see like a whole lattice network of the universe being held together by this other stuff um yeah, it's all of it's all of it's pretty crazy. And then, you know, even when you're talking about like primordial black holes at the beginning, like the the perspective to think on that, too, is you always have to remember that the universe is incredibly small then. Like, it's not like yeah. the universe is the size it is now. And there were just like some clumps of gas in like one little corner and they turned it as like some primordial black holes. No, the gas filled up the whole universe and those were all over the place in the whole universe, but the universe was just very tiny. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's weird to imagine. Cause they say like the, the time period for like those black holes to form would have been whenever there was just a pressure drop in the universe. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like everything kind of like relaxes for a second yeah, and then they're it able expanded to expanded just enough. Yeah. Which is, you know, gosh, the expansion of it. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> well, you know, that's the name of the podcast. Well, that's all I got on event horizon telescope and Sagittarius A star. Let me just, check twitter.com to make sure no major events happened while we recorded so we don't sound like monsters insensitive for me page um jury finds both amber heard and johnny depp were defamed after weeks-long trial they defamed Beautiful. the shit out of each other good and then susan collins is trending i'm sure she said something fantastic yep looks like we're in the clear all right, man. Well, enjoy your art show. 
I hope you get to go, you, you have to go back every day and do your spiel in front of your painting, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm part of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're you part are of the in, installation of your own RPs. <laughs> if you're in downtown LA, um, just message me, email me, and I'll send you the address. And time of gallery, that's the other difficult thing. It is in a medical school, so the gallery is open uh, weekdays, 9 to 5. Oh, yeah, convenient. Right, so... Take time off work. It, I mean, nobody wants to work anymore, so they probably got time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kim K. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.